on the Side podcast, the podcast that takes a look at the things that happen just beyond the pages of your history book, at the people, places, and ideas that may have been mentioned in passing but play a much larger role in the story. I'm Josh Burns, and this is Episode 9, Tales of the Conquistadors, Part 3. In our last episode, we continued our journey with Hernando Cortez, Bernal Diaz, and La Malinche in their exploration of Central America. In this episode, we will skip ahead to the meeting between Cortez and Emperor Montezuma, And I'm skipping ahead for three reasons. First, for me, to keep telling the story like I have been might start to get a little old and boring. The Spanish were either greeted warmly by friendly natives, or they were greeted coldly by native groups that sought to unalive and murderize them. Diaz's account in The Conquest of New Spain certainly isn't boring, so if I'm leaving you wanting more, you should check it out for yourself. Second, I was hoping to show some of the drastic differences between the European and Native American civilizations in things like culture, religion, weaponry, and tactics. That's what I envisioned for the first two episodes, and that's what I feel like I was able to get across. Third, the Spanish conquest of the Aztecs has consequences that we are still dealing with even today, and opens up lots of incredible stories that I really want to get to. At the start of this series, I felt that it would be helpful to give the background for some of these stories, and history being what it is, there's not really a good place to jump into a story without having to backtrack and backtrack and backtrack and on and on and on. Going in this direction, I feel that enough groundwork has been laid that will make those stories make a little more sense when we get to them. So now that we have that out of the way, let's begin. When we last left the Spanish conquistadors, it was late spring 1519. Montezuma had refused an audience with Cortez, but the Spaniard wasn't taking no for an answer. Over the next few months, Cortez led his forces steadily toward Mexico, repelling attackers and making alliances as he went. Now, let's pause here for just a minute. To say that the Spanish were able to topple the Aztec Empire all by themselves is incorrect. The abilities, knowledge, and mere presence of native allies were crucial to the Spanish victory. The willingness of the native tribes to ally with Cortes speaks to the amount of discontent felt by those tribes toward Aztec rule. So keep that in mind as we go forward. And back to the story. Eventually the Spanish came to an area named Cholula. Everything seemed fine at first, but Diaz says that a change took place among the Cholulans and it seems that Montezuma intended to use the villagers to try to stop the Spanish advance into his territory. Some of the Spanish were even to be sacrificed to the Aztec gods. Diaz notes that traps had apparently been prepared in the village. Large stones had been gathered on the rooftops and holes had been dug in the ground and filled with spikes to try to take out the horses. The villagers offered two adults and five children as sacrifices to their gods, hoping to gain victory over the Spanish. The other women and children of the village were sent away. Something big was about to happen. Montezuma was apparently unable to figure out what he wanted to do about the Spanish conquistadors, changing his mind several times in one day. At first he wanted the Spanish treated well and greeted warmly, but then he would change his mind. Diaz tells us that the gods Tetzcalipuca and Huitzilopochtli had advised Montezuma to either kill or capture the Europeans. Unsure how much of this information was actually true and unwilling to wait and find out, Cortes ordered a preemptive strike on the people of the village. Diaz says that the general consensus among some of the Spaniards was, quote, If we left the contemplated treachery of the Cholulans unpunished, the Mexicans would play us worse tricks in other places, end quote. While all of this is going on, La Malinche, Cortes's favorite interpreter, did some digging on her own. Diaz tells us that an old native woman, the wife of one of the chiefs, tried to convince La Malinche to abandon the Spanish and to hide in her house from the carnage she knew was coming. Montezuma, the old woman said, 
had ordered that the Spanish were to die, but there was no reason that a native such as La Malinche should suffer the loss of her fine possessions or the destruction of her youth and good looks. La Malinche, who Diaz refers to by her adopted Spanish name of Dona Marina, remember, stalled for time and tried to get some more information from the old woman. How were the Spanish to be killed? When had the plan to kill them been formed? How did she know all of this? The answers were they would be cut down by other soldiers coming from further in Mexico, and the plan had been formed at least three days ago by the village chiefs at the request of Montezuma. Donna Marina smiled and nodded and promptly told Cortez all that she had learned. The next day, the Spanish were ready. Cortez addressed the village chiefs, asking them why they had intended to kill the Spanish. Why did they mean to do the Spanish any harm when all they had done was to try to get them to abolish the practices of human sacrifice and the eating of human flesh? You already have the dishes prepared, complete with salt, pepper, and tomatoes, ready to eat us. If you are going to attack us, why not do it boldly in the field? Your gods have no power over us. The natives retorted that everything that had been done had been done under orders from Montezuma. Cortez responded to this by saying, quote, The Spanish laws did not allow such treachery to pass by unpunished, and that they would be punished for it with the loss of their lives. End quote. A cannon fired, and the Spanish attacked. Diaz describes the scene, saying, quote, A great number of these people were put to the sword, and some were burnt alive, to prove the deceitfulness of their false gods. Before a couple of hours had elapsed, our friends of Tlaxcala came storming out of their camp into the town and fought courageously with the troops of Cholula in the streets who strove to drive them back. They then dispersed themselves about the town for the sake of plunder and taking prisoners, nor were we able to prevent them. The following day, more troops arrived from Tlaxcala, who committed worse depredations. So deeply rooted was their hatred against Cholula. At length, our compassion was aroused, and we ordered the Tlaxcalans to stay all further hostilities. End quote. Now let's pause here and unpack this a little bit. Did you catch what Cortez said about Spanish law? He is presuming to be judge, jury, and executioner of a people who did not recognize the European laws that he was citing. Realistically, he has no right to do this under Spanish law. There is no Spanish law here. The next thing to note about this battle, or massacre as some call it, is that even Diaz notes that it took hours. To me, this reads as methodical and intentional on the part of the Spanish. Hiding under the flimsy notion of the non-existent Spanish law, this feels like Cortez and company took their time inflicting punishment on these villagers. Notably, Diaz states that the people were put to the sword. He uses the almost biblical idiom instead of mentioning the matchlocks and crossbows that we know the Spanish had with them. Aside from the cannon firing to start the carnage, Diaz doesn't mention any other weapon except the sword. That, along with the mention of the people being burned alive, reinforces the slow, methodical, and brutal nature of this encounter. Cortez was sending a message. Now don't get me wrong. If the villagers had been allowed to carry out their plan, violence would have still happened. You need only to look at the description offered for the Tlaxcalan behavior during the main encounter and on the following day. Diaz doesn't elaborate on the specific depredations the Tlaxcalans performed, fortunately, but it must have been pretty bad for the Spanish to order them to stop. Following the carnage, Cortez brought out two captive Mexican ambassadors and essentially showed them the devastation as a warning to be sent back to Montezuma. The Spanish were coming to meet him, and they would no longer tolerate these kinds of behaviors. 
Doesn't this come across as a little patronizing on Cortez's part? Anyway, Montezuma was upset that his plans were unsuccessful. Diaz tells us that, quote, Montezuma was excessively vexed and grieved at the news and instantly ordered a number of Indians to be sacrificed to his warrior god, Huitzilopochtli, that he might reveal to him whether he should obstruct our march to Mexico or allow us peaceable entrance into his metropolis. Two whole days did he spend with his papas, or advisors, in devotional exercises and in sacrificing human beings to his idols, and at length was advised by them to send us ambassadors to apologize for the occurrence at Cholula, end quote. Well, that sounds good, right? Well, Diaz continues, and fair warning, it's a little gross. Quote, He was further to allow us to march into Mexico under every show of friendship, but when we had entered the town to deny us provisions and water, break down the bridges, shut us in, and put us all to the sword. If they attacked us in a body and from all sides at once, not one of us could escape. Not till then were the great sacrifices to be instituted, as well in honor of the warrior god Huitzilopochtli, who had given the oracle, as in that of the god of hell, Tetzcalipuca. Our legs, thighs, and arms were to be eaten at their feasts, and our entrails, with the remaining part of our bodies, were to be thrown to the serpents and tigers, which they kept confined in wooden cages. End quote. So what's going on in Montezuma's mind here? In the book, The Native Conquistador, we can take a look and learn a little bit of what may have influenced the great king. Now, the book, The Native Conquistador, is a fascinating one. If you've noticed, so far in this series, I have drawn heavily from Bernal Diaz del Castillo's book, The Conquest of New Spain. This book, as we have seen, tells the story of the Spanish conquest from the Spanish point of view. The Native Conquistador, however tells the story of the Spanish conquest from the natives' point of view. And that's a pretty big difference. If you were to ask someone what history is exactly, chances are that you would get something along the lines of, it's what happened as written by the winners. Winston Churchill is supposed to have famously stated that history will be kind to me, for I intend to write it. So the whole history as written by the winners thing is a point of view that isn't necessarily incorrect in 100% of the cases. But when you have sources that present the quote-quote loser's perspective, it is important to hear what they have to say, to hear their voices. It gives a better and more well-rounded perspective to the events that are unfolding on the page and allows for a better understanding of the, of the events taking place as a whole. The native conquistador gives us the voice and perspective of a native by the name Ixlilzochli, as passed down by his great-great-grandson, a 17th century man named Fernando de Alva Ixilcochtli. Now, small side note, I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that name right. I'm most likely going to pronounce it a different way each time I say it. It's spelled I-X-T-L-I-L-X-O-C-H-I-T-L. And the internet can't seem to agree on the best way to pronounce his name either, but I'll do the best that I can. We're going to turn to the native voices here in a minute, but there is one more thing that we need to understand before we dive in. In the introduction to the native conquistador, the editors and translators point out a couple of key points for us. First, in their words, quote, some native people resisted Spanish conquest while others participated as conquerors themselves, end quote. Second, the primary source materials we have for the conquest vary widely in their perspectives. And third, we have some native perspectives that don't even really mention the Spanish at all, or at least not in the sense of being Spanish super soldiers or anything. 
In the words of the editors of the book, quote, Conquest was just something that happened in central Mexico, and the Spaniards were simply one more entry in the long list of conquerors in this region's history, end quote. Conquest and warfare were just parts of everyday life in Central America. The Aztecs and their neighbors even participated in ritual battles, called flower wars, where the goal was not to capture land or cities, but to capture people to be used as sacrifices. These flower wars were smaller engagements where a predetermined number of troops met an equal number of enemy troops at a predetermined location where the two sides would fight in close quarters, hoping to capture prisoners. These prisoners would usually be brought back to their captor's temple to be ritualistically killed in order to nourish the gods. While this predetermined situation is weird by itself, what's even more strange is that this arrangement was agreed upon by the major city-states in the area. The Aztecs also had some of the most fantasy-sounding names for their infantry. Eagle warriors were kitted out in eagle feathers and a headdress made in the form of an eagle's head, including the beak. They also had jaguar warriors who wore the skin of a jaguar with their faces sticking out of the animal's mouth. I will say that in Age of Empires II, sending an army of these warriors into battle against some hapless British longbowmen is pretty awesome. And then there were the shorn ones, warriors who shaved their heads except for a long braid over their left ear. These shorn ones had sworn to never take a step backward in combat or their comrades would kill them. For all three groups, inclusion was at least partly based on the number of enemies the soldier was able to take captive for sacrifices. So yeah, warfare was pretty constant. But what does this native source say about Montezuma himself and his reasoning for trying to kill the Spanish almost every chance he got? Alva Ixtlilcochtli, who was being translated in the native conquistador, tells us that the Spanish conquest had been foretold by ancient prophecies, and that in 1519 was now being heralded by strange omens that signaled the coming doom of the Aztec people. Other sources state that there were at least eight omens. First up, a bright fireball-like comet that lit up the night sky. Next, the temple of Huitzilopochtli burned down. Third, a temple was struck by a bolt of lightning that did not produce any thunder. Fourth, Three balls of fire streaked through the sky from west to east. Fifth, the lake that surrounded the Aztec capital city of Tenochtitlan suddenly started swirling and created a mini tidal wave that struck the city and crumbled many buildings. Sixth, a mysterious weeping woman being heard in the dark over the course of several nights saying things like, My children, we must leave. Or, My children, where will you go? Seventh, some fishermen found a strange bird in Lake Texcoco. The bird allegedly had a strange black mirror-like thing on its head. They brought it to Montezuma, who saw in the mirror-like thing images of the sky, constellations, and a great army riding giant deer and carrying strange weapons. Upon seeing these things, Montezuma called his priests over to see them also, but the images vanished and the bird promptly died as soon as his advisors got over there. Eighth, just weeks before the Spanish arrived in Tenochtitlan, either a two-headed monster or a two-headed man was brought to the palace. But as soon as Montezuma looked at the creature, it disappeared. Creepy and weird, right? Montezuma took these omens to heart and meditated on them and what they could possibly mean. Could these omens really foretell the coming of the children of the sun, who were prophesied to overthrow him and his empire? 
Montezuma had been aware of these strange new people ever since the first expeditions had arrived on his shores way back in 1517. Now it was 1519, and here they were coming to his land and wanting to see him. His gifts only seemed to make these Spaniards want to see him more, and the idea that they were coming to possibly overthrow him didn't sit well with the emperor. Now, some in Montezuma's kingdom, including the emperor's brother, told him to resist the Christian invaders, while others said that it would be unbecoming for an emperor to refuse hospitality to the ambassadors of a foreign king, in this case, King Charles I of Spain, also known as Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. European nobility was weird. Montezuma didn't really know what to do. On one hand, he was the ruler of a powerful, proud, and warlike people who had kept the surrounding areas underfoot for years. On the other hand, if these omens and prophecies were true, then there was nothing that he could do to stop the inevitable victory of these intruders. November 8th, 1519, was a momentous day. It was the day that Emperor Montezuma II finally met Hernando Cortes face to face. The native conquistador states simply that Montezuma met the Spaniard, gave him gifts, and let him stay in his house in Tenochtitlan. Bernal Diaz gives us some more information. Around 450 Spaniards came to the city, and, if Diaz is to be believed, were completely in awe of everything that they saw. A magnificent city stood on an island in the middle of a lake. Causeways linked the island city to the shores and other towns on the lake's edge. Hundreds of canoes were in the lake, each filled with natives eager to see these new foreign visitors and the strange horses they brought. More natives stood on rooftops, hoping to catch a glimpse. Diaz implies that seeing all of this splendor made the Spanish wonder if what they were seeing was actually real. Here was the splendid city of Tenochtitlan, a city that some historians estimate held anywhere from 60,000 to 300,000 people. Now, if those estimates are correct, then Tenochtitlan may have been one of the largest cities in the world at that time, and larger than almost every city in Europe. It had wide city streets, floating gardens, marketplaces, temples, palaces, zoos, and even a rudimentary aquarium. Skull racks displayed the skulls of sacrificial victims. Even a tlachtli, or a court for the famous Mesoamerican ball game, was present. The city had it all, and the Spanish were incredibly amazed and impressed. Finally, Montezuma arrived and met them on one of the causeways leading into the city. The emperor sat in a litter and was shaded by an expensive canopy decorated with gold, silver, green feathers, and pearls. Montezuma himself was finely dressed, wearing boots that were set with jewels and had soles made of solid gold. As he walked toward the Europeans, some of his retinue went before him, laying cotton cloths on the ground for the emperor to walk on. None of his courtiers would look directly at the emperor. Cortes dismounted, and the two leaders exchanged pleasantries. According to Diaz, Cortes brought out a splendid necklace of precious stones and put it around Montezuma's neck. However, when Cortes went to embrace the emperor in a friendly hug, Montezuma's people said, no touchy, and would not allow the Spaniard to touch the emperor. The Spanish were escorted to beautiful, spacious rooms in a sort of almost apartment complex, nearby to some temples and with a view of some of the idols that were sacred to the Aztecs. Now, this will be key later on, so keep that in mind. Montezuma personally showed Cortes where he was staying, placed a golden crab necklace on his neck, and told him to act as if he was at home. Even in this semblance of peace and friendship, 
The Spanish were still wary, however. Diaz tells us that before they did anything else, the Spanish placed their cannons in a nice defensible position and made sure that their cavalry and infantry could be deployed at a moment's notice. Only after these preparations had been made did the Spanish rest and eat. Later that day, Montezuma and Cortez met in the apartments and had a nice long chat. They had to get to know each other after all. According to Diaz, Montezuma had known about the Spanish for a long time and had wanted to meet these children of the sun who had come to fulfill the prophecies of his ancestors. Thanks to how the Spanish had handled themselves in battles with the other tribes of the area, Montezuma had no more doubts as to the effectiveness, read lethality, of the Spanish forces. Cortez, I imagine, must have smiled to himself as he answered that, yes, he and his men were indeed from the rising sun, and had been specifically sent by Emperor Charles V to beg that Montezuma and his people would become converts to Christianity. Now, I don't want to discount what Diaz says here, and I'm certainly not an expert in this area of history. But as we've seen so far, the Spanish seem to have made gold the priority, and religion came second. We know that the native practice of human sacrifice was abhorrent to the Spanish, but in my reading of Diaz, it is clear to me that the material took precedence over the spiritual. Now, obviously, your mileage may vary on that point. As we will see in a moment, Cortez will, at least to Diaz, do an admirable job as a missionary soon. Something else that is clear to me here is that Cortez is not telling Montezuma the truth. If you recall, Cortez had actually been ordered to give up command of this expedition back in Cuba, but had blatantly ignored Diego Velazquez's orders and set sail anyway. So this whole line about the Holy Roman Emperor sending Cortez specifically to Montezuma is not true at all. Later on, Cortez will actually send letters directly to the emperor to justify the actions he takes in Mesoamerica. But that is more along the lines of trying to save his own skin than to report back that he accomplished the emperor's super-secret mission for him. In this moment in time, however, there was not really any way for Montezuma to know that his guest was lying to him. Montezuma instead gave the captain gifts. Gold trinkets and feather blankets. Something for everyone, as all the soldiers got some too. Assurances of friendship were made by all, and, not wanting to overstay his welcome, Montezuma made arrangements for the Spanish to have everything that they needed brought to them. Montezuma then bade them all farewell. Almost as soon as the Aztec ruler was out of the door, however, Cortez ordered his men to stay in their rooms until they knew how things really stood. Cortez, it seems, did not trust Montezuma at all. The following day, Cortez and a small party of Spaniards visited Montezuma in his palace. Here, while seated on an elevated semi-throne, Cortez began to play the part of a missionary, explaining to the emperor the concepts and beliefs of Christianity. Cortez pointed out that the idols that the Aztecs worshipped were really devils and no gods at all, as evidenced by the fact that everywhere the Spanish had planted a cross, the Aztec gods were powerless. Cortez and his men, he explained, were here to try to put an end to the misery of human sacrifice and other unnatural offenses. Cortez stated that his group was only the first group of messengers in this task. Montezuma, however, wasn't swayed. He replied that he had heard all of this before from various reports that he had received from his informants. The Aztecs had always worshipped their gods since time immemorial, and these gods were good gods, and there would be no more talk about religion. 
Instead, Montezuma explained that he had been reluctant to bring the Europeans to Tenochtitlan on account of the rumors about them from his people. Montezuma's people had believed the Spanish to be wild, unruly, semi-godlike wielders of fire and lightning who were able to kill hundreds of people with just their horses. Now that the emperor had met them firsthand, he saw that they were men of courage and understanding. He also knew that the Tlaxcalans, a neighboring tribe, had told Cortes that Montezuma was some sort of god with rooms and rooms of gold, silver, and jewels. But all that was not true. Montezuma was merely a man, a great man, to be sure, who had inherited great wealth, but just a man. A good little DTR session, it seems. Just two men talking and giving presents back and forth, talking about what and who they believed in, and dispelling notions of supernatural power. Everything seemed to be fine and dandy, but it wasn't. Four days after arriving in the city, Cortez and a small entourage decided to take a walking tour of the city of Tenochtitlan. According to Diaz, Montezuma, afraid that Cortez would commit some offense to the idols, sent some of his officials to accompany them. They toured the marketplaces full of all kinds of things you could buy, such as silver wares, animal skins, paper, foodstuffs, pottery, cloths, jewels, finely crafted gems, and slaves bound at the neck to prevent them from escaping. Everything you could want, even human poop, which Diaz says was used for tanning leather, and episode 9 and the first reference to poop. They saw law courts, instrument stands, and gold vendors. Tenochtitlan was a bustling metropolis of trade and commerce. Finally, the Spanish arrived at the temple courtyards. Montezuma was sacrificing at the top of one of the temples, and sent some men down to invite Cortez to, up to join him. 114 steps later, Cortez reached the top and came face to face with a nightmarish scene. And just a heads up, the next little bit's kind of gross, so be warned. Victims doomed for human sacrificial rituals lay on stones scattered atop the temple. Pools of fresh blood lay in front of statues in the shapes of dragons and other figures. Sacred fires continually burned at the top in large braziers. Montezuma himself stepped out of the sacrificial shrine along with two priests. Not seeing anything out of the ordinary, Montezuma approached Cortez and proudly showed him the view of Tenochtitlan from the top of the massive pyramid. The Templo Mayor, as it is known today, was a massive dual temple that was dedicated to Huitzilopochtli, the Aztec god of war and the sun, and Tlaloc, the Aztec god of water and rain. Standing almost 200 feet tall, the view from the top must have been incredible. The entirety of the city lay before them, like Texcoco and all the causeways that linked the city with the mainland. And from the top of the temple, the Spanish could see just how extensive the marketplace actually was. Diaz says that some of the men who had seen some of the markets of Rome and Constantinople claimed that the one in Tenochtitlan was larger than either of those, which is saying something. After taking in the view, Cortez turned to one of his priests, Father Omedo, and said that it would be pretty cool if Montezuma allowed them to build a church on top of the temple. Father Olmedo agreed that it would be a good idea if Montezuma would allow it, but warned that to make a suggestion like that to Montezuma in this moment might be considered too hasty. Cortez turned to Montezuma and said, quote, Your majesty is indeed a great monarch, and you merit to be greater still. It has been a real delight to us to view all of your cities. 
I have now one favor to beg of you, that you would allow us to see your gods and Tules. End quote. Now, Tules means a sort of a demigod from the best that I can find. Montezuma consulted with his priests and then led them back into the shrines that he had just come from. Inside were statues of monsters. Diaz recounts the scene. Quote, On each of these basements stood a gigantic, fat-looking figure, of which the one on the right hand represented the god of war, Huitzilopochtli. This idol had a very broad face, with distorted and furious-looking eyes, and was covered all over with jewels, gold, and pearls, which were stuck to it by means of a species of paste, which in this country is prepared from a certain root. Large serpents, likewise, covered with gold and precious stones, wound round the body of this monster, which held in one hand a bow, and in the other a bunch of arrows. Quote. He goes on, saying, quote, Around Huitzilopochtli's neck were figures representing human faces, and hearts made of gold and silver, and decorated with blue stones. In front of him stood several perfuming pans with copal, the incense of this country, also the hearts of three Indians, who had that day been slaughtered, were now consuming before him as burnt offering. Every wall of this chapel and the whole floor had become almost black with human blood, and the stench was abominable." On the left was a similar scene, except the idol represented Tetzcalipuca and was in the shape of a bear. This one had images representing the souls of dead Mexicans under him, and Diaz describes him as being the god of hell. The stench on this side was worse than a Spanish slaughtering house, according to Diaz, and five human hearts had been presented to him in sacrifice that very day. Horrendous enough, but there was a third shrine above these two. The topmost shrine held a statue in the shape of a half-man, half-lizard, completely covered with precious stones. This room also contained what Diaz described as a massive drum of hell, as well as other hellish objects, trumpets, slaughtering knives, and the burnt hearts of sacrificed victims. Everything was covered in dried human blood, and the stench was unbearable. Diaz called the temple a spot of horrors. Clearly the top of the temple was a horrific and sickening sight for the Spanish. But Cortez simply smiled, turned to Montezuma, and said, quote, I cannot imagine that such a powerful and wise monarch as you should not have yourself discovered by this time that these idols are not divinities, but evil spirits, called devils. In order that you may be convinced of this, and that your papas may satisfy themselves of this truth, allow me to erect a cross on the summit of this temple, and in the chapel, where stand your Huitzilopochtli and Tetzcalipuca, give us a small space that I may place there the image of the Holy Virgin, then you will see what terror will seize these idols by which you have been so long deluded. End quote. As you would imagine, this didn't go over so well with Montezuma or his priests. Montezuma answered, quote, Malinche, the Aztec word referring to Cortez, could I have conjectured that you would have used such reviling language as you had just done, I would certainly not have shown you my gods. In our eyes, these are good divinities. They preserve our lives, give us nourishment, water, and good harvests, healthy and growing weather, and victory whenever we pray to them for it. Therefore, we offer up our prayers to them and make them sacrifices, 
I earnestly beg of you not to say another word to insult the profound veneration in which we hold these gods. End quote. The two parted ways after this particularly icy conversation. Cortez went back to his quarters, while Montezuma went to offer more sacrifices to atone for Cortez's comments. A Christian church at the top of the Aztec center of worship wasn't going to happen. Days went by and the Spanish soldiers were starting to get restless. They went to Cortez and reminded him of what the surrounding villagers had told them about the Aztecs and their leader. To remember that they were here at Montezuma's mercy, and that that mercy could be rescinded at any time and for no reason at all. The soldiers felt that Montezuma should be seized as soon as possible and used as a hostage of sorts, so the Spanish soldiers wouldn't be slaughtered on a whim. According to Diaz, Cortez had at least considered the latent danger that they found themselves in, but he could not think of a way to pull off something like capturing the emperor out from under his bodyguard's noses. Eventually, after much debate, Cortez gave his full consent to a plan to attempt to capture Montezuma the following day. Before their plan could begin, however, the Spanish were visited by two Tlaxcalans who brought dire news. The Spanish town of Veracruz had been attacked. Seven Spanish soldiers and a horse had been killed. Their native allies were no longer going to help them, and the belief that the Spanish were some sort of demigods had vanished. The Spanish were now seen once again as mere mortal men, and the natives were becoming insolent and threatening toward them. Now was not only the perfect time to strike, but also the most prudent, as who knew when the Aztecs would try to slaughter or sacrifice the Spanish who were in the heart of the Aztec capital city at the mercy of the monarch. Something had to be done. Everyone was made ready and the horses were saddled. Cortez, five officers, and two interpreters went to pay a visit to Montezuma. Diaz claims that Montezuma was a little uneasy about the reports of the attack on Veracruz, but didn't suspect anything once Cortez and the others arrived. Once all the pleasantries were over, Cortez gave a long speech accusing Montezuma of ordering the attack at Veracruz, as well as the one at Cholula, which we discussed at the beginning of this episode. He accused Montezuma of allowing his generals to plot to kill the Spanish despite all the friendliness the Spanish had showed him and his people. As preposterous as it sounds, Cortez threatened war and the total destruction of Tenochtitlan unless Montezuma went with Cortez back to the Spanish apartments to live there with them. But if Montezuma were to, quote, make any alarm now or call out to your attendants, you are a dead man, and it is for this reason only that I have this time brought these officers with me, end quote. Understandably, Montezuma was stunned speechless by these threats and accusations. When he was finally able to recover from the shock of being spoken to like this, he retorted that he had not ordered anyone to attack the Spanish, and that he would question his generals to find out the truth from him. Montezuma was understandably astonished that the Spanish were trying to take him prisoner against his wishes, as no one had a right to do that. He was very much disinclined to acquiesce to their request. He would refuse to come with them, no matter what Cortes said. For half an hour, we are told, the two leaders argued back and forth. Eventually, the Spanish officers grew impatient. Diaz says that one of them, Juan Velasquez, said loudly to Cortes, quote, What is the use of throwing away so many words? He must either quietly follow us, or we will cut him down at once. Be so good as to tell him this, for on this depends the safety of our lives. 
we must show determination or we are inevitably lost. End quote. Montezuma heard this, of course, and turned to Donna Marina, the native-born Spanish interpreter, to ask what Velazquez had said. Donna Marina shrewdly answered, quote, Great monarch, if I may be allowed to give you advice, make no further difficulties, but immediately follow them to their quarters. I am confident they will pay you every respect and treat you as becomes a powerful monarch. But if you continue to refuse, they will cut you down on this spot, End quote. At news of this possible regicide, Montezuma tried to offer his son and two daughters as hostages instead of himself. Cortez didn't budge, though, and Montezuma finally agreed to come with them. Montezuma was escorted to the Spanish quarters and told his people that everything was fine. He just wanted to hang out with his good friend Cortez at his place. No need for any violence. Cortez had made some pizza rolls and everything was cool. Don't call me, I'll call you. And despite the circumstances, everything was fine, or at least seemed to be, according to Diaz anyway. Business went along mostly as usual. Supplicants came to the emperor and judgments were made. But that is according to the Spanish side of things. The native conquistador states, quote, After the Spaniards had spent four comfortable days hosted and entertained by the Mexica, Cortes seized Montezuma under some unknown pretext, proving what they say about cruel men being cowards, end quote. So, to the native writers in this source, anyway, the specific reasoning behind Montezuma's imprisonment was unknown, save for it being the will of God. But here the notion that Cortes was a cruel man comes into play. After a few days, the generals who had led the attack on Veracruz were brought in as prisoners. Montezuma sent them over to Cortes to pronounce judgment on them. According to Diaz, Cortes had them burned alive in front of Montezuma's palace. As an added insult, during the execution, Cortes ordered that Montezuma be put in chains just to make sure nothing inter interfered with the proceedings. Montezuma, we are told, quietly submitted to this humiliation. Once the burnings were done, Cortes, flanked by some of his officers, personally removed the chains, assuring him that Cortes loved him like a brother. Montezuma was in tears, but thanked Cortes for his kindness. To me, Montezuma at this point seems to have given up. Diaz tells us that his family came to him daily, begging for permission to pick a fight with the Spanish. And day after day, Montezuma continuously told them not to. Montezuma was confident that his confinement was the will of Huitzilopochtli. And that confinement would continue. But Cortes would visit with the emperor each morning to see if there was anything he needed and to check on his health. The Spanish would play Aztec games with the emperor. Cortes also listened when the monarch complained that the, about the insults his Spanish sentinels hurled at him, disciplining those troops who repeatedly insulted the emperor. Montezuma soon got to know each of his captors by name as well as the peculiarities of each man. Diaz tells us his own personal experience with Montezuma. In his story, Diaz tells us that he respected the monarch very much and uncovered his head in the native fashion which the Aztecs practiced in the emperor's presence. Montezuma apparently noticed this and inquired who Diaz was. Upon hearing that Diaz had previously explored Central America with Cordoba and Grijalva, Montezuma gave Diaz a young woman whose Christian name was Donna Francisca as a gift, presumably for her to become his wife. 
Diaz tells us that he respectfully thanked Montezuma for this kindness and hoped that God would bless the ruler for this. Impressed with this gracious response, Montezuma is supposed to have said, quote, Bernal Diaz appears to me to have the true feelings of a well-bred man, end quote. And then heap treasures on him. This giving of wives to generals and even the Spanish that he seemed to like seems to have been a relatively common thing for the emperor to do. Most of the time, though, Montezuma seemed to reflect on his confinement. More time passed. Montezuma expressed a desire to go to the temple to sacrifice to his gods. This would be a great idea, he claimed, because he could fulfill his religious duties and convince his people that all was right with the world, that he was still choosing to stay with the Spanish of his own accord instead of staying in his palace. Cortez allowed it, but expressed his worry that the people would see this as an opportunity to try to recapture their emperor. Cortez also would not allow any human sacrifice to be performed, since this was a sin against God. Montezuma reluctantly agreed, and set out with all the pomp and circumstance that a man of his station was entitled to, with the exception of the Spanish guards and priests there to make sure that Cortez's wishes were kept. Despite those wishes, the people of the town had continued to offer people to their gods, as Diaz says that four natives had been sacrificed the night before. Nothing could dissuade the natives from practicing their religion. Yet more time passed. Conspiracies to free Montezuma were uncovered and squashed. Orders went out through all the land that every township in the Aztec Empire was to send in a tribute of gold to Montezuma, the majority of which was given to the Spanish. In an effort to prove his friendship, Montezuma offered one of his daughters to Cortez in marriage. Again, Cortez asked for permission to build a church and altar atop the Templo Mayor, and after lots of arguing between the emperor and the priests, he was allowed to do so. A cross and a statue of the Holy Virgin were placed atop the temple directly opposite the idol depicting Huitzilopochtli. This latest offense to the Aztec gods seems to have finally been the last straw. Huitzilopochtli and Tetzcalipuca were said to have spoken directly with the Aztec priests and told them that the Spanish had to leave the city. If the Spanish stayed, they were to be executed. Up to this point, remember, the Spanish occupation of Tenochtitlan had been seen as the will of the gods. But as the Spanish continued to melt all the decorations of the gods into gold bars and raise the cross and statue, it simply became too much for the gods to apparently ignore. Diaz says that Cortez hid his fears from Montezuma and put on a brave face, claiming that any who attacked the Spanish would be killed. The Spanish, however, couldn't leave as they didn't have access to any ships, and then even if they did, Montezuma would have to come with them. Moreover, Montezuma was essentially told to order his carpenters to go and help them build ships, and then to be quiet. The Spanish were nevertheless on high alert, never taking their armor off and never far from their weapons. Sentinels were posted, and the horses were kept saddled and ready to move at a moment's notice. Trouble was coming, but maybe not in the manner that Cortes and the Spanish in Tenochtitlan were expecting. Spanish forces were on the way to the continent, but not to reinforce the soldiers already there, but to rein in Cortes and bring him back to Cuba. But that will be for next time. And that will be the end of this episode of the History on the Side podcast. As always, thank you so much for the downloads and the listens. Keep it up and make sure you tell your friends about the podcast. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. 
And in case anyone asks, you can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. If you have any questions, concerns, comments, or suggestions, you can get in touch with me by emailing historyontheside at gmail.com or through the Facebook and Instagram page. Just search History on the Side and enjoy. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time for Tales of the Conquistadors, Part 4. Part 4